This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The Soundtrack Show will begin in five, four, three... Producing soundtrack albums like the ones that Mike Mattesino has released requires an incredible amount of hard work. The research of a historian, the discipline and instincts of a musician, the determination of an archaeologist, and the mind of a narrative writer. This is The Soundtrack Show. Welcome back to The Soundtrack Show. I'm your host, David W. Collins. And over the next two episodes, we're going to feature an interview with my favorite soundtrack producer and arguably the most important soundtrack producer over the last 20 years in terms of the history of film scoring. And that's Mike Mattesino. I've been waiting to chat with Mike for years. I first discovered his work in 1997, back when I was in college, with the special edition RCA Victor releases of Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back, and Return of the Jedi. And I've been following his work ever since. Over the years, he's slowly taken over the whole process of film soundtrack releases himself. And this interview will walk us through this process. Instead of, for example, spending costly studio time, he's created his own mastering studio so he can work at his own pace to meet his own high standards of quality. We'll hear fascinating stories about how he dives into the archives of every major studio around Hollywood and restores, and sometimes outright saves, recordings that are deteriorating in storage vaults. We'll hear a hair-raising story of how he witnessed 
tape stock from a very famous movie deteriorating in front of him as he digitally rescued the recording for restoration work. We're going to hear also how he picks and chooses what music to include and what music must be omitted out of necessity or through tough judgment calls in special edition soundtrack releases and discuss a topic that is one of the most common questions that I get on the show. How are soundtracks put together? Why are some chronological, almost archival in nature, while others are totally out of sequence and heavily edited into a shorter album? All of this and more in part one of our interview with Mike Mattesino. For over 20 years, Mike Mattesino has been producing some of the greatest and certainly grandest soundtrack releases that classic movie film scores have ever enjoyed. Whether it's the special editions for the classic Star Wars trilogy, other Williams scores like E.T. or Jurassic Park, musical gems like Jerry Goldsmith's Star Trek The Motion Picture, Silvestri's Back to the Future trilogy, or even some obscure but brilliant scores that desperately needed the royal treatment, our guest on this episode has established himself as the special edition soundtrack producer in Hollywood. Please join me in welcoming Mike Mattesino to the Soundtrack Show. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, David. This is great. Glad to be here. You know, you know, listeners to this show have heard me quote your essays and your liner notes for a long, long time now. I've been following your work ever since 1997 when you first started. I believe that's when you started. So thank you on behalf of all of our listeners and soundtrack aficionados for being such a, a central figure in getting this music into the hands of listeners. Oh, my pleasure. I mean, uh, I see myself as, uh, you know, one of you all. I wanted this stuff and wanted to, uh, um, you know, do what I could to get it out and to, um, you know, support it, um, not realizing that uh, I would find myself in the position that I eventually got to. But... Uh, you know, somebody's got to do it, and I consider it a tremendous responsibility. I feel that it's a protection of cultural history and want to have releases that really will still be valid and worthy of study long after the composers and all of us are gone. You know, I want to, you know, have this uh, legacy protected. It's funny because your job seems to be part music producer, but as you mentioned here, also part historian and kind of part archaeologists in a lot of regards. Can you discuss kind of the process of putting together a special edition release from beginning to end, especially when you're unearthing source material that is oftentimes buried in a vault somewhere? You know, like you mentioned preserving this material. Well, that's a big question, and uh, we could probably put together a whole university course on it. But uh, generally speaking, as with everything in Hollywood, it's a combination of art and commerce. You know the old saying, it's show business, not show art. But of course, we're doing art. We're doing, um, you know, film itself is part of cultural history. And of course, the music that goes with movies has evolved as cinema has evolved and as music itself has evolved. And um, it's all still valid. It's all still a window into um, a certain time period and to a certain group of artists. So how you approach it has an infinite number of variables. But uh, on the business side of it, it basically all depends on, comes down to who owns it. What's the studio? And 
has there already been an album and who controls the mm -hmm. album? So you start with that. I mean, generally speaking, if we're expanding or doing a special edition or a restoration, there probably was an album at some point. And so you start with that. You see what's on it, who owns it, how does it sound, uh, how much more is there, where is it, and that varies depending, you know, studio to studio, what era it is, um, and uh, you know, it's just, it's just everything is case by case. It's almost like no two projects are really exactly the same. You would really have to pick a title, and then, um, and then I would kind of take you through it. But they're all different, and that's, I guess, why. Um, it remains so interesting. Um, you would expect that there's some kind of consistency, but it's amazing how often I find that there's none. Something from the same year might be kept in pristine condition for one score, but for another score the same year, even the same studio, it's gone. It's just all sorts of variables. It's, just, it's As you said, archaeology, it's just a sort of a never-ending uh, question mark of will you find it or won't you and in what condition will it be and then what can you do to make it um worthy of having a release making it listenable and and getting it out there so i mean i kind of really you know could just sort of ramble on about that but uh, again we'd have sort of have to pick one particular case and then walk through it but it's just uh, it's just a you know kind of just a constant unraveling of a mystery that changes from project to project. Well, that's, yeah, you mentioned getting specific, and that was a very broad question. Um, just to kind of drill down to one section of something that you said, and this kind of goes to the archaeologist part of it. I think that a lot of listeners would be surprised at how far gone some material that you would think it would be very famous you just not be taken care of or rotting away in a vault somewhere or just lost to history. Do you find that there's a correlation between how big or famous a film score was? Let's, let's take Jaws, for example, you know, just to kind of throw one out there. If you have Jaws, uh, you know, it's, it's 40 some years old and you would think if you go back into all the elements that they would be completely taken care of. Do you find that that's the case or do you, uh, do you really have to go and dig for some of these things and evaluate the quality and whether or not it's releasable? In, in picking Jaws, we actually haven't narrowed it down too much because there you have the big factor there is that it's universal and it's the 1970s. And they had a particular mentality at that that was sort of unique to that studio in that uh, once they were finished with the picture, they were not seeing that there, I mean, really, I guess all studios sort of felt that way then, but they were not seeing that there would ever be any use for uh, any of the material beyond that. At the same time, you've got a picture that's very, very popular. So the likelihood of um, just the elements for the film itself, the negative and the sound master and all that, the likelihood of that getting utilized and played a lot to make copies and prints and so forth is, um, it gets much more wear and tear than something um, that was not successful. So therefore, sometimes the movies that were not successful are in better shape. Interesting. Then, of course, there's the issue of how is it stored, what kind of stock it was on, um, has you know has been pulled and transferred, you know, since then. I mean, I've worked on things that actually haven't budged from the same shelf for 30, 40 years, and then you just never know what you're going to get when you play them. Um, but it, again, there's just there's just this is organic material. It lives in 
in or, or organic space. It's subject to the you know the, the the cans and the boxes that are around it and the air quality. So I mean, it's going to react to its environment. Um, you know, digital material reacts in a different way. It also can degrade over time, and there, but there are steps that we take to, you know, protect the data. But organic material is a different beast, and uh, it's going to degrade. It's going to be subject to environmental influence. So, um, but then at the same time, technology advances, and um, so when you take something, I mean, I've done many many projects, particularly with 20th Century Fox, where we have had scores that were just unlistenable in, say, the 90s or even up to early 2000s. Um, but then when technology changed and advanced, suddenly we could do something with it and extract the, um, the good sound out of it. So now on Jaws, the release that I did used the same exact material that was done for the Decca Records release in the year 2000, exact same material. But uh, it's just a matter of um, how much time they spent, where the technology was, um, what the creative decisions were made at the time, um, you know, what their budget was. Uh, when I came along, it was with a lot of determination to make this sound better. Um, the advantage of a lot of advanced technology um, that allowed me to, uh, that I could apply to it, that would help it. And my schedule is my own responsibility. If I choose to take three weeks to work on JAWS, um, then I will and, and did, probably more. And that's just because, look, it's JAWS. It's one of the most famous, most important film scores ever. Um, it needs to be as good as it could possibly right. be and that's where you know my feeling of sort of personal responsibility for this comes into play because i always really no matter what the project is i always the ad what i always bring to it is a thought that this might be the one and only time anybody ever gets to work on this and do something with it so you better make damn sure that you get it right terms of the correlation of um, the, the degree of the success of a film, um, I, I'm not quite sure if, um, if that really is a factor. I will say that um, it is a situation like that that got me started on it in the first place. It was in um, the mid-90s when I was um, working, started working for Robert Wise and was doing um, a documentary on the making of The Sound of Music 
for its 30th anniversary. Mm-hmm. Midway through that, I got a call from 20th Century Fox telling me that they were pulling the music elements also and were going to be doing something with them. And did I want to take part in that? And I said, of course. I go down to the lot where they had these the, the 35 millimeter mag of all of the score of The Sound of Music being put up. And I see the machine room and these guys are wearing surgical masks and this this vinegary smell is in there and I see powder coming off of some of the reels and I'm told that you know on some of them they'll be able to get one play <laughs> and transfer it over to a protection tape to in this case it was two inch 24 track and at the same time they would do a sort of a live mix uh, captured digitally. songs they have sung for a thousand years. The hills fill my heart with the sound of music. My heart wants to sing every song it hears. My heart wants to beat like the wind. You know, and I couldn't believe that something as important and famous and successful as The Sound of Music was actually having its scoring elements degraded. I mean, these were toxic. They would have to, they ended up having to be incinerated. Oh. And so what survives is the protection copies made then in um, early 1994. So that was sort of the big awakening for me. Um, and then when we got to things like the Star Wars trilogy, I had an advisory role um, about you know, how to assemble things and piece things together. It was a bit frustrating for me because I kind of wanted to take it further, but um, I couldn't. I was really just giving instructions to other engineers, and eventually I ended up making the decision, you know what, I just need to do this myself. I need to learn this. I need to get equipment. I need to set up a studio. I need to just do this myself. And it took a number of years, but by um, 99, 2000, I had started doing it myself and found that I could give it the TLC and a lot of attention and a lot of meticulousness that when you're there um, in a, a big place like 20th Century Fox working in one of the dubbing rooms where they would dub you know the new pictures that were in production, um, you're paying a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought, well, you know, I can bring the cost down by just, you know, it's make my own schedule and live with the material. And if I have a problem, I can just let it set aside and think about it and then maybe come back and solve it. 
um, rather than what was going on for most of the 90s, which was just barrel through, get it done in a day, and, and, and how it sounds is how it sounds. If there's hiss, there's hiss. <laughs> If there's wow, there's wow. With the sound of music. If it's uh, damaged, it's damaged. Um, if it's terribly damaged, you just would have to leave it off. Um, so Interesting. again, this sort of change happened where um, I wanted to get involved in it, but thankfully parallel to that, the technology changed and we were now able to do this um, with uh, less bulky equipment and, um, you know, an amazing, constantly developing software to, uh, that actually, uh, you know, affects audio with digital processing that can actually fix things and make things listenable. So that whole evolution was, you know, going on and, uh, and that's really how I got into it. It started with the sound of music, and then since then I've discovered how all the studios are different, all the tape stocks are different, mm. different uh, places where they record, different storage uh, methods, different formats that they're saved or not saved on. Um, and, you know, so again, the, I didn't expect that there would be quite so much archaeology, as you put it, um, coming into it, but... Um, uh, but there is, and that's and actually it's that could actually be both the fun and sometimes frustrating part of it. But uh, you know, again, just somebody's got to do it because if if nobody understands it, nobody's ever going to go looking for it and do anything with it. It's just going to sit there until it degrades. And now for a brief intermission. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We return now to the soundtrack show. One of the things that's so interesting is it truly is the wild, wild west out there in terms of every project is different. Every every different um, film score has its own challenges. And, and it's amazing to think that it wouldn't even occur to me to think that movies that are not as popular are actually more well-preserved because of analog wear and tear. You mentioned on uh, on Star Wars, when you were working on some of those earlier projects in the 90s, certainly cost was was through the roof because you didn't have your home, home studio. What did you mean by taking it further? Did you mean taking more time to finesse? Because I can, you know, just from my own work experience, I find year after year things like, denoising software and any sort of digital plugins become better one release to the next. It's incredible what's happened over the past 20 years. Yeah, I can't begin to wrap my mind around what goes into actually designing computer software and plugins. 
that um, affects audio in a certain way. I've always said that those people are geniuses. That is a particular kind of uh, brain that's wired in a way that mine is not. So, but I guess what I meant was um, just that the, the, the idea of actually being by myself, not on a clock, uh, mm-hmm. not worried about an hourly rate of booking some studio or um, having to worry about communication problems of just me verbally verbalizing to another engineer of what I would like to hear and what I'm hearing that I'd like him to get rid of, you know. Um, you know, and that's a, it's kind of a tough situation for anybody when you got someone breathing down your neck, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, ex- trying to explain things to you. So uh, it ju- it just seemed that the the this the particular nature of film scoring is what made this necessary. It's because of the fact that uh, it's very various formats. Um, you sometimes have multi-track, you sometimes have mixes, you sometimes have six-track, four-track, eight-track, whatever. It's always, always different. And so and sometimes you have to combine everything. It's like, I don't know that any other genre of music is really like that. Um, you know, uh, basically, when a, when a pop artists do it, they have their mixes, and the mixes are done, and that's it. And that's, you know, what you live with forever. When they did instrumental albums, classical albums, you know, the sound of the record is the sound of the record. With film, it's just, it's all over the place. So um, it was just the unique character of film music and how it was recorded and how it is saved um, that I think called for this very specialized approach. Um, and you could only really be sure that you're getting it right if you do all the legwork all of the homework, make sure you gather all of the materials, really put up one against, one against the other. Um, check for the speed, because we find that often, you know, the speed variances, the albums are faster, the albums are slow. With the sound of music. Or um, the transfer is off versus what the movie has. Mm-hmm. Um, you, all of these things, it just takes time. To um, you know, compare the mixes, mix of the album to the mix of a, a later album, to how the movie's mixed. Um, you know, uh, to, all the, all that time is just um, was never there before, and I just felt that it was necessary. So there, it really, this could only be done if sort of the situation changed, so that that I could have that kind of environment and um, have the freedom and the flexibility to give it that kind of. Um, attention. So I think that's what I meant by taking it further. Right. So I felt it was necessary. I had a, I had a follow up question too. Um, not so much about technical, but about creative. You know, a lot of a lot of soundtrack listeners and film score fans uh, want to hear everything. Just give us everything. You know, as opposed to say John Williams, who actually curates a listenable album album experience from beginning to end, not necessarily in chronological order of the movie, but wants to make a record, you know, a real, a real album with a side one and a side two and a nice musical flow, like a, like a symphony. Um, but, you know, I once heard Sean Murphy say, for example, in an interview, you know, people want everything. They even want like just, you know, a sustained note in the strings that was just meant to, as a music edit to bridge one piece to the next. But why put that on the album? Do you ever find yourself having to make creative decisions about what to omit not just because, say, the the material that you were working with, whether it was multi-track or mag or whatever, wasn't of quality, but actually just because musically it just didn't make sense to include. Does that happen pretty often? 
It does. Um, yeah, quite a bit because, of course, you know, I, I work on – if you factor in all the Twilight Time Blu-ray uh, music tracks that I do, probably about 120 scores a year come and go through me. So if you do the math, that's more than two a week. I have no clue how yeah. any of that gets done. I, re- I really don't have any clue. But somehow it does. Um, but, uh, you know, so there's, so there's a lot of other albums from other eras and um, – and and sometimes yeah, there will be a decision to leave something off or to um, quite often to tighten sustains, um, certainly pull up pauses. But we do have the particular specialized market for these things does seem to be sort of conditioned to um, want to have something that has an archival quality to it or has that kind of vibe to it that um, you've got something that represents everything that the composer recorded for the film. There are cases where I feel very strongly about maybe putting something in a bonus track versus into the, um, into the main program of the score. And recently, I've tried to make some decisions to not necessarily be chronological um, in the presentation, um, but to craft something that made for a better listening experience, yet still was complete. But uh, I, I, I would have to say that, you know, unfortunately, I think we've sort of fostered an atmosphere whereby the market of the people who really are uh, interested mm-hmm. and buy these things, their antenna goes up looking for the, f- the flaws. They will focus on the five seconds of something that's missing mm-hmm. rather than the 75 minutes of music that they've ne- never had before. Um, so I do want to factor that in. We also have sometimes things leak out and you have bootlegs and, um, it's a very, very frustrating, touchy subject. But the fact is that when it exists, I usually will get that audio and compare it again to, uh, you know, I will say, well, it's out there and people buying this might say, well, I've got to keep my bootleg now because it's got this 10-second cue on there that's not on here. And I try to, right, um, right, right. <laughs> you know, I, I will factor that in. Sometimes things do just have to go. But uh, but by and large, again, as I said before, I try to see this. I, I look at this as the one and only opportunity anybody may get to work with this material and get it out there. It might never happen again. So... Um, if something can be at home in a bonus section, then that's always a good uh, option. I remember a little cue from The Fury. It was just a little fragment um, that uh, didn't really have a place. It wasn't used in the film, didn't have a place in the main program, but it worked fine in the bonus section. So we put it there. And I think that the fans who buy this appreciate that. And, you know, I, I try to be as comprehensive as possible, but I do like the listening experience um, to be good. And, um, Lately, more than in the past, um, I'm I, a lot more open to maybe breaking from the chronology a little bit here and there um, in the interest of uh, a better listening experience. The Soundtrack Show will continue in a moment. We return now to The Soundtrack Show. I wanted to ask you about soundtracks in terms of physical media, vinyl and CD in a bit, but really what I wanted to ask you about was in the age of digital, do you find that you're still 
constrained in terms of runtime on these releases for including some of this other material. You know, I, I know that a lot of people do want all that extra stuff. And back in the day, it's like, well, shipping costs, are we a one disc set or are we a two disc set? But nowadays, do you still have to consider the physical media or, or is there a little bit more freedom now? You still have to consider the physical media because um, the labels who put these releases out only get the physical media rights. Mm, interesting. So, um, you, you, you know, there, we're in to an era where the compact disc, which was sort of the standard music format from the late 80s and all through the 90s, um, is now a collectible item. So, um, you know, you are limited to um, what a disc holds. So sometimes the way that you program something, the decisions that you make are based on how it um, lays out, you know, on, on the CD format. So if you run into a situation where you've got a great score and it's 87 minutes, how do you split it so that it, you know, feels good um, for the consumer? And in a case like that, that's something where we might decide to include the original album on the second disc because we have the space, because the material is already licensed. You know, in some cases the album might be different, but uh, most of the time you've got unique edits and unique um, pro programming choices that uh, make that viable. But uh, sometimes it, that happens based on, um, you know, the, on the running time. So, um, so that is a factor. Um, you know, you've got 79 minutes to work with on one CD, but uh, if you have something that's, say, 85 minutes, you've got two choices, you can cut six minutes off, or you can find a way to make it a two-disc set. Quite frankly, the labels don't mind making it a two-disc set because their price point goes up for not spending all that much extra, you know, on the per-unit cost. But usually the retail price jumps up $5, you know, so they don't necessarily mind that. But, you know, from my perspective, it's about um, does the release have and is it structured um, in a way that makes sense and that's appealing to people. Right. Um, you can be very unappealing if you uh, do one CD and leave things off. Hmm. Sometimes you find yourself having to explain, you know, why you stretched 87 minutes over two discs. You know, so it is a factor. I mean, I, I and, and really the shipping particularly to international, it's gotten, uh, you know, obscenely difficult. And there are a lot of people, you know, who are um, outside the U.S. who want to buy these things. Um, but the taxes and the import fees, you know, are sometimes those are higher than the cost of the disc itself. And mm -hmm. um, that's really, really sad. And uh, they, you know, they would love it if um, – we were just um, releasing things digitally, and I wouldn't have a problem with that. The problem is that the uh, licensors are not granting those digital rights. Quite often, you have projects where it involves more than one entity. So, um, for example, something like um, you know Jaws or Close Encounters um, or um, 1941, I mean, or, or, or E.T., they involve a record label and they involve a studio, each of whom control different music. And the only way that everything can be put together is by a third party. Because you won't, for example, get, say, Warner Music Group and Warner Brothers Pictures. They won't be licensing to each other. Um, so Warner Music Group might have the album rights and they can do whatever they want with them digitally. 
but they can't do anything with the music that was not on the original album. Yet the studio can't do anything with it either because they don't have the phonographic rights to the score. So it's all, it, so a third party has to come in to it, put it all together. It's the only way to make it happen. And right now, those the people who control the rights are not giving the, the, the um, digital rights to the labels, only physical media. But, um, but these labels are the only way that uh, the projects can happen at all. So it's a little bit of a catch-22, um, and, uh, and it's very frustrating that, um, you know, what's happening worldwide to our economy um, is such that uh, um, people are prevented from uh, getting the things that they're really passionate about and are really wanting um, to support. In part two of our interview, we'll discuss the state of the music industry and how it relates to soundtrack sales and film music. We'll discuss some of Mike's personal favorite scores, and we'll tackle the subject of his writing, a crucial element to the creation of this show, as Mike has written some of the most informative, detailed liner notes for many of his soundtrack releases. And they oftentimes serve as the best and only source of information for many of the topics that we've covered. Lastly, we'll get a sneak peek into one of his future releases of a very famous film score. Thank you. <laughs>